Welcome to church. This week, we're continuing our sermon series titled Counterculture. Through the series, we'll be exploring perseverance in a hostile culture. This week, Pastor Paul is sharing his message titled Staying on Mission. If you're new here, we'd love to get you connected with our community. You can message us on Facebook, Instagram, or by simply texting hello to 587-323-1199 and we'll respond right back. We're so glad you could join us today. Good morning, Pastor Paul, and I'm pastor to the seniors here at Calvary Community Church. I'd like to welcome you all here this morning. Good to see people up in the back. Hey, how you doing up there? That's yeah, good. No talking while I'm preaching. You know that, okay? And those of you here on the main floor, it's good to see you. And those that are watching online, we're glad for you too. And if you're here for the first time today, this is your first Sunday here, I hope that you will be in Encouraged by your visit today. A few weeks ago, I sent out a, well, every Sunday I send an email to our seniors here, and I always put in four jokes or humorous stories. A few weeks ago, I sent this out, and I didn't realize maybe how true it would be. A man who had attended church in years suddenly began attending faithfully on Sunday mornings instead of going fishing, as was his normal habit. The pastor was highly gratified, and at the end of the service, one morning, told him, how wonderful it makes me feel to see you at services with your good wife. Well, preacher said the fisherman, quite honestly, it's a matter of choice. I'd much rather hear your sermons than hers. (laughs) That's not supposed to be a joke, but actually... The reason I told it to you today, because my wife and I work together on these sermons. I don't have a real good grasp on grammar. I was all music when I went to school. I had good grades there. The rest of them weren't important. Now, later in life, I find I should have really paid attention to grammar. But my wife helps me out. We, we both enjoy research, but she does a great job of it, too. And so this morning, this is a message from my wife and I to the church that Jesus Christ might be honored and glorified. We are studying through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and this is our second message. Last Sunday, Pastor Doug introduced the series, and he just opened a wide door for me, so it was really easy to come into this part of the book. And the title, of course, is called Staying on Mission. But I have a subtitle today, and the subtitle is Living Our Lives in a Way That God Would Consider Worthy. So let's take a closer look at this passage. Verses 1 and 2 say, You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. You know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. Yet our God gave us courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. It is important to note that at the onset of this message, that this passage of Scripture is often misunderstood as merely Paul trying to defend his apostleship, but it is not. It is true that Paul and Silas had been brutalized before coming to Thessalonica, as described, and you can read about it in the book of Acts. In fact, they were arrogantly mistreated with false accusations and illegally punished in spite of their Roman citizenship. 
And Paul's team was falsely accused of civil treason in Thessalonica, and they also suffered physical intimidation. But Paul defends himself with a greater purpose than just simply trying to vindicate himself. First, he points out his conduct so that those who are reading his letter would learn from his example and do likewise. And second, to protect the work the Lord had accomplished through him and his partners. Paul's goal for the Thessalonian believers was that they would walk in a manner worthy of God. Verse 12 clearly states it, and I want you to read it with me this morning. Let's read it together. Here we go. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy, for he called you into his kingdom to share his glory. Wow. This is the purpose of life. This is the new lifestyle to embrace. In these 12 verses, Paul describes for them a pattern or model for all believers, not just pastors or missionaries, but all believers to follow both then and now. So what does this pattern or model look like? We find their manner in verses 1 and 2. Paul, first, Paul appealed to the Thessalonians' personal knowledge of his life and ministry uh, there and his associates while they were there in Thessalonica. He had been accused of being a self-seeking peddler of this new message of the gospel. But the apostle could appeal to their personal knowledge of his character, of his ministry. In fact, he appeals to their knowledge of his life six times in the short book of 1 Thessalonians. A vital principle here, and I want you to catch this, a vital principle here is that we must not ignore the fact that our personal lives speak powerfully to the nature of our ministry in the motives, methods, and the means we employ to accomplish the work of God. Our behavior patterns demonstrate the validity and biblical authenticity of what we are doing. And I've often said, we Christians live in glass houses. Do you think your neighbors notice you? Do you notice your neighbors? Of course we do. They're noticing you too. They noticed this morning you got up and went to church, or at least you went someplace. And they know that every Sunday morning, oh, man, they leave the house same time every Sunday morning. That's right, people watch us. Live in glass houses. And that's okay. That's okay. Second, verse 2 also speaks of boldness in sharing the gospel of God. In spite of pressures and opposition, they had formerly faced and were facing at the present time. Paul's example was to proclaim God's word regardless of mistreatment and knowing what difficulties will come for doing that. This is what Jesus proclaimed as well as the apostles. There are many reasons Christians do not witness or share their faith, but no doubt fear is the underlying issue. 
fear of failure, fear of ridicule, fear of hostility, and so on. They are both outward and inward battles. The work of leading people to Christ and helping them grow is a struggle, a spiritual struggle. To the victorious, to be victorious in this call, we need to commit ourselves to four things. First of all, earnest effort. We never win by half, by half trying. It requires hard work, though never in the energy of our abilities, strategies, or methods. 1 Corinthians 15, 10 says this, But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me, and not without results, for I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but God, who was working through me by his grace. <laughs> Number two, putting off that which hinders. Hebrews 12.1 says, Since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Number three, singleness of mind. Eyes on the goal. 1 Peter 1.13 urges us to think clearly, to exercise self-control, looking forward to the glorious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. <sighs> Number four, pain. Oh, we don't like this. I don't like this. But if we are committed to our comfort and pleasure above the needs of others and God's call, we simply won't be able to follow the Lord. Philippians 1.29 is a great verse, but it's a little tough one, you know, because it says, but for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting Christ, watch out for the second part here, also the privilege of suffering for him. Sometimes we don't like to hear the second part of that verse, right? You can shake your head just... That's a tough one. You tell someone there's only one way to heaven, depending on who you tell that to, you're going to suffer. They're going to think you're a nut. I got to stick to my script here. I guess, yeah. Verses 3 to 6. This is what verses 3 to 6 say. So you can see we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we never sought it from you or anyone else. According to this passage, Paul and his team were pure seeking only to please God and minister in a biblical manner. Because they were authentic, free from cover-ups, they also never resorted to human schemes or strategies for accomplishing the work of God. Paul uses three disclaimers to affirm the purity of his motives for ministry. 
First of all, he denied being a smooth-talking preacher who tried to make a favorable impressions in order to gain influence for selfish advantage. Number two, he did not pretend to be poor and work day and night as a pretense to get rich in the ministry at their expense. And number three, he didn't use his honored position as, a, as an apostle to seek glory, only God's glory. <laughs> These men were so secure in the Lord, they had peeled off all typical masks and were able to stand vulnerably before God and people. So for just a moment, what are some of the typical masks people wear today? Here's a few in just in a nutshell. We put on the joy mask. When the circumstances of life are extremely difficult and we are having a hard time coping of life, so we grit our teeth, slap on a smile because we believe that Christians are always supposed to be happy, or at least look that way. Now, the opposite of the joy mask is the suffering mask. We wear it when we want the world to know just how difficult life has been and maybe even feel sorry for us. And then, I've got it all figured out mask is worn when we want people to think we have a greater understanding of just about everything than we actually do. Now, the flip side to that mask is I never have any doubts. We put on that mask when we can't cope with situations we are encountering and we want to appear confident. All four masks are deceptive. The human condition is real and it is not shameful to admit our faults. People pleasing is exhausting and an impossible goal to me. Have you found that out? Why? Because people's desires are always changing. So we live to please who? God, right? This is where knowing that God does not change is very valuable. His character and his laws do not change, so we have a target that does not move. We know what pleases and displeases God. Living a life worthy of God means we will care about what God thinks. Verse 4 says this, For we speak as messengers who have been approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. So how were they approved? Listen to this. Approved is dokiamazo and means to approve after testing. Remember that Paul and Barnabas had been separated unto ministry by the Spirit of God only after they had been proven at the church at Antioch. They had been involved in a local ministry which became, which became the proving ground for their character, for their ministry. And next, what does it mean to be entrusted with the gospel? First, Paul and his team viewed the gospel as a treasure to be entrusted to them for safekeeping and for investment in other people's lives. The good news for which Paul preached included these truths, that God will forgive sins, deliver from sin's power, and give eternal hope. And Paul and his team 
were consumed with this message. Are we consumed with that message? It was important for Paul to assure the Thessalonians that the message of the gospel of God does not come from error. In the New Testament, error is used figuratively of wandering from the truth, error, deception, delusion. It particularly looks at the empty ideas and ideologies as the wanderings of men's hearts who do not have the knowledge of God's special revelation as found in Scripture. Paganism and all religions, apart from knowledge and faith in God's word, always produces a perversion of God's original revelation to man. It retains many basic elements of truth, but twists them into practical falsehoods. The consequent confusion of beliefs and of values leaves men wandering in a maze of uncertainties. The Christian church, our church right here, is the custodian of the glorious message of the inerrant, inspired word of God, the truth that sets men free and sets them apart for God. But unfortunately, even, many evangelical churches have turned away from the word of God and its central thrust and focus. It has adopted methods that no longer truly maintain a concern for truth or for a theology that is rooted in the word of God. And unfortunately, many times it's all over the news. Two things are going on at once in the church today that are undermining the authority of the Bible. Watch this. A failure to recognize or act on, one, the sufficiency of the Bible as God's inspired word. And number two, the finality of the gospel of Christ as the power of God unto salvation. These are being lost in attempts to be politically correct, to be relevant to a society bent on self-centered pursuits to be popular with the world, to avoid criticism, to entertain, and to provide a good, emotionally-oriented kind of church. John H. Armstrong, in his book, The Coming Evangelical Crisis, says this, Theology is the knowledge of God in both salvation and sanctification, but there can be no true knowledge of God apart from sound Bible teaching, preaching, and I probably should have put the word study in there too. Teaching, preaching, study. There can no true knowledge, no true knowledge of God apart from that. And according to a survey in Christianity Today, a magazine put out in the States, theology in any sense of the word is really not all that important to the very people to whom it should matter most, those in the pew and in the pulpit. Both groups, listen, both groups listed theological knowledge as last in terms of pastoral priorities. That's where many evangelical churches are today. Not all, many. 
It is interesting, at the same time, very disturbing to note what each surveyed group considered more important than theology when it came to pastoral duties, priorities. For the people in the pew, spirituality was of first importance, followed by relational skills, character, and then communication skills. It is difficult to decipher what is really meant by spirituality in this survey, since the respondents so distantly removed it from theological knowledge. The question then to us today and to them, how can spirituality be divorced from the knowledge of God? How can spirituality <clears throat> excuse me, be divorced from the knowledge of God? The answer is, there can be no vital spirituality without song, sound doctrine. Writes Donald Bloch in his book, Crumbling Foundations, Death and Rebirth in an Age of Upheaval. There can be no vital spirituality without sound theology. In fact, listen to what Paul says in Galatians 1, 8, and 9. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcome, let God's curse fall upon that person. Obviously, I'm not trying to be a people pleaser. No, I am trying to please God. If I were still trying to please people, I would not be Christ's servant. And so Paul clearly recognizes something that we need to realize. The true gospel is offensive to sinful human beings. You cannot remove the offense of the gospel without removing the gospel itself. Paul recognized that it was impossible to share the true gospel without offending the lost. It's interesting that in verse 5 that we read, but Paul uses the term, God is our witness. As one who lived in the light of the resurrection, and for believers, that includes the judgment seat of Christ, a place of rewards or loss, Paul was one who endeavored to have a blameless conscience, for he knew that God only knew his heart, but would one day bring to light things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. But Paul has appealed to the Thessalonians' knowledge of him and his team, but they could not judge his inner motives, for this lay beyond their ability so he appeals to God. And our motives someday, and the things hidden someday, will be revealed. That's a good one to think about for a while. Verses 7 to 11. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead we were like children among you, or we were like a mother feeding and caring for your own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too, 
Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preach God's good news to you. You yourselves are our witness, and so is God, that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. And you know how we treated each one of you as a father treats his own children. So in this section before us, the apostle uses two figures to describe their ministry. One, a loving mother and a concerned father. And a concerned father is number two. Loving mother, concerned father. Here the emphasis is first on gentleness and willingness and then on fatherly instruction backed up by godly example. Now folks, this is not a surface love for them. Paul loved them to such a degree that he did not only share the gospel, but also shared his life with them. Paul and his team gave themselves completely to these Christians without reservation. In actuality, in actuality, Paul showed what it means to be a Christian to these people. By reflecting on his work there at the church in Thessalonica, Paul highlighted four, I want you to get these, four positive elements. First, Paul was sensitive to their needs. Paul was sensitive to their needs. Paul and his commandments weren't rough or incentive to the Thessalonians. They were gentle, like a nursing mother caring for her children. There's nothing selfish in a mother's role. Instead, mothers are in a constant state of giving themselves to their children. Paul gently and tenderly cradled those infant believers in Thessalonica, nourishing them with the food of God's word. He selflessly committed himself to understanding their hopes and fears so he could meet their genuine needs. Verse 8 says, We loved you so much that we gave you not only God's good news, but our own lie. The second thing here I want you to remember, God, Paul had great affection for people. Now remember, as we said, being Paul's example for all of us, not just the preachers, all of us. Paul was, had a great affection for the people in his church? That's a good question for us here today. Do you have a great affection for all the people in this church? Now, I know you may not know them all, but this is a family here. Paul had great affection. The Thessalonians had become precious to him. He loved them with a strong brotherly love. They could get close to him. Unlike some leaders who maintain safe distance from those who who they had been placed over. Paul didn't cling to a strictly professional relationship. He was all about loving people and providing for their needs, spiritually and physically. Verses 9 and 10 read, Do you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preach good, God's good news to you. You yourselves are a witness, and so is God, 
that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. Number three, Paul modeled transparency and authenticity. Paul not only shared with the Thessalonians the truth of the gospel message, but he also, listen to this, he also lived out the gospel every day of his own life. It didn't take long for the new believers and even unbelievers to see his authenticity and find that attractive. He labored hard to live out the principles that he was preaching to them. Only leaders whose actions match their message have the power to motivate others. Verse 11, and you know we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. Number four, Paul exhibited enthusiastic affirmation. That's what it takes. Parents and coaches understand the kind of exhorting and encouraging and employing Paul had in mind when he reminded the Thessalonians of his enthusiastic affirmation among them. He was kind of like a dad rooting for his son who was playing football. Father watching his son playing football. Well, that's a stupid thing to do, kid. No, he didn't say that. Way to go, way to go. Even if he made a mistake, well, hey, keep playing, keep going, keep going. That was Paul was doing to these believers. Paul and his associates cheered on the newest members of the church. These people had been spiritually beaten black and blue, hassled and jostled, not only by the Jews, but by the Gentiles in their city. It would have been very easy for them to drag themselves off the field Sit on the sidelines. But Paul's loving, fatherly affirmation urged them on. That's effective leadership. Enthusiastically coaching the team toward a goal, even when they felt beaten down and defeated. So a little schoolwork here today. Number one, Paul was sensitive to their... Whoo, way to go, man. That's good. And... Um, Paul had a great affection. Uh, not yet, team. I'm not there yet. I got a long... No, no. I got a long ways to go here. We got some power things coming here. And number two... I, you forget. I, I'm going to do it two times. Okay. Uh, Paul had great affection for model transparency and... Someone took notes. Authenticity, right? And... Paul modeled enthusiastic. He affirmed the people. Do we affirm each other? And verse 12, we find the motivation for all of this. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you into his kingdom to share his glory. What is the ultimate goal of these things? Toward what objective? was Paul trying to lead these Thessalonians. It was so that the Thessalonians would live their lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you, called them into his kingdom to share his glory.
into his kingdom to share his glory speaks of the sphere of eternal salvation is recorded in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, For he has rescued us from the one who rules the kingdom of darkness, and he has brought us into the kingdom of his dear son. God has purchased our freedom with his blood and has forgiven our sins. And that all culminates in the splendor of heaven. About now, I'd like to break in the song, sing a great song about heaven, wouldn't you? In fact, I have one here, but I'm not going to sing it. Mansion will glisten in the hills of glory. Happy reunion on the streets of gold. Angel choirs sing glad praises forever. But Jesus will outshine them all. Ugh, I love that song. If I had time, we'd sing it, but I'm not. Heaven. And the older I get, the more I think about it, too. <laughs> uh, when I was young, I didn't, you know, didn't think about it a lot. And, you know, my dad preached about it a lot, but, you know. But now when I'm 70-something, I think about it. At the heart of all this is our faithfulness to God and his precious word. And this is our training manual, people, the Bible. If we are not faithful, we will find ourselves pampering mothers and absentee fathers who wonder why our babes in Christ never grow up, but instead become prodigal children in pursuit of the world rather than God's kingdom and glory. So Paul has spoken of how he lived his life before them with boldness to proclaim God's message, showing a life of purity as he seeks God's approval, and reveal his love for them as he shared his very life with them. He uses these aspects of how he came to these Christians to exhort each one of them, encourage them, and charge them to walk in a manner worthy of God. Having said that, please do not misread this idea. Paul is not saying that we are earning this blessing or that we need to be worthy of what God has done. That's not possible. We cannot be worthy of love, mercy, and the grace of God as displayed in Jesus. What God is telling us to do is to live in a way that shows that you and I understand what God has done. Live your life in a way that shows who you are. Live your life in a way that reflects what you have been called to. Perhaps you are here today and you've never invited Christ to be a part of your life. Perhaps you are waiting to become worthy. Jesus himself in Matthew 11, 28 and 29 says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is an open invitation to all who will hear. The words, you will find rest, is good news. It means rest from endless, fruitless effort to save oneself or to become worthy by one's own effort. Today, right now, is an opportunity to come and be forgiven of your sin and receive the gift of eternal life from God. Please pray with me if this is, represents your need and desire today. Dear God,
I know that I am a sinner. I'm sorry for my sin. I want to turn from my sin. Please forgive me. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I believe he died on the cross for my sin and you raised him to life. I want him to come into my heart and take control of my life. I want to trust Jesus as my savior and follow him as my Lord from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer today, I would invite you to text LIFE at 587-323-1199. We will reply to you with next steps on your spiritual journey, or if you wish, there will be people down front today that will talk to you about the decisions you have made. For those of us who have already received the gift of eternal life, this is, next one is an invitation for us too. Like salvation, which is through grace alone, through faith alone, living a life worthy is only accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. As we surrender to him daily and are obedient to his word, he works in us to accomplish this mighty work within us. If this is your desire today, I invite you to pray this prayer along with me, prayer that I pray many times, sometimes more than once a day, because I need the Holy Spirit to empower me, and sometimes I just enjoy sitting self on the throne, doing it my way. But here's this prayer. Pray it with me. Lord, I surrender my life once again to you, to be used to bring you glory. May I, like Paul, be sensitive to the needs of others, be authentic, genuinely love people, and be enthusiastic in serving you that the gospel would be made known through my life and my words. Strengthen, encourage, and bring comfort through your word so that I might live a life that would bring glory to God. In Jesus' name, amen. Worship team, if you come. Now, I do want to do a little bit more classwork here because I feel it's important that we take these home. So Paul was sensitive to their... I think most of you got that. Paul had a great affection for people. Paul modeled transparency and... Yeah, he didn't wear a mask. Paul was Paul. And number four, Paul exhibited enthusiastic. I'm going to see if I can get through this. Don and I had the opportunity to visit Pastor OJ on Friday at 11 o'clock at morning. Barb, so grateful for the time you allowed Don and I to have with him. We had a great conversation with him. And so Don was sitting there and says, what would you like us to read? What scripture would you like us to read? So we didn't have a Bible. We had our phone. And Pastor George said, Psalm 91. So Don started reading it. And while she was reading, I believe it was the Holy Spirit that said to me, Paul, I want you to read your text. 
that you were going to preach to OJ today. So I did. Now I know we've already heard these verses, but this is how I said it. OJ, I want to read this to you today. You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. You know how badly we have been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there, yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly. Even though we were surrounded by many who opposed us, and I thought, OJ, what have you been going through the last two years? COVID. Government changed the rules all the time. Pastor O.J. worked through those things in a godly way as we watched him. Month after month after month. Verse 3 goes on, so you can see that we were not preaching with any deceit or impure purposes or trickery. Let me tell you one thing O.J. did, he preached the word straight. Without uh, trickery or anything, he preached the word straight. I love that. I love it. For we speak as messengers who have been approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He is the one who examines the motives of our hearts. O.J. loved people, but when it came to preaching the word, if you got upset, that's your problem, not his. He preaches straight. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we are not just pretending to be your friends so you would give us money. As for praise, we never ask it from you or anyone else. Do you ever ask, hear O.J. ask for praise? Never. He was a humble servant of God. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but we were as gentle among you as a mother feeding and caring for her own children. That's the way O.J. was. He cared for each person in this church. We loved you so much that we gave you not only God's good news, but, but our lives too. The last 20 years, O.J. gave his life as a lead head pastor, as a head pastor of this church. And in the previous 20-some years, he, he became an elder at age I believe it was 24, and a few years down the road, chairman of the board of elders here at this church. He served this church. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we told earn a living so that our expenses would not be a burden to anyone there as we preach. God's good news among you. You yourselves are witnesses and so is God that we were pure and honest and faultless toward all you believers. And I said, looking right at him, and that's you, OJ. That's you. And we pleaded with you, encouraged you. And I've heard this many times from OJ's lips that you would live your life in a way that God would consider Worthy, for he called you into his kingdom to share his glory. I wanted to share that with you this morning. That's my last opportunity with him. And, and he was a huge example to his church of speaking the truth of the word of God. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you need anything, don't hesitate to contact us. You can find more information on our website, Facebook, or on YouTube and Instagram. We'll see you again soon.